right, while everybody's getting settled down, uh, I've got a couple of announcements to remind you about. First of all, uh, you know, first of all, you probably shouldn't be looking at your phone during Bible class because the election returns might be coming in and you don't want to get out of fellowship. You know, focus on the word. Yeah, I already knew I stepped on somebody's toes once or twice. Secondly, uh, the registration for the Chafer Conference, or excuse me, Chafer Summer School Courses started yesterday and extends until next Friday, which is June the 3rd. And West Houston Bible Church members can take up to two courses, uh, tuition-free. You pay for registration fee in your books, but you get to... Uh, take it the course is tuition free, which is which is a great deal. And then third, we're going to have Vacation Bible School July 19th to the 21st, and we need one more co-teacher for the primary class and one person to help with snacks and two volunteers to help with toddlers. So that should take care of the uh, uh, announcements. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And God, I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And um, we need to remember, as I was just briefly informed before I came in here from men's prayer, prayer study, that there was uh, just a horrible um, thing that happened over in Uvalde this afternoon, and a bunch of school kids and their teacher were killed. So we need to be in prayer for especially the caregivers. There'll be some chaplains there who understand the gospel and can truly uh, minister to them from the Word of God and um, and all for all the uh, other uh, people who are involved in dealing with that situation. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble. And trouble is a word that so aptly describes what is going on around us in this world today, whether we're talking about the economy, whether we're talking about politics, whether we're talking about what's happening in the entire legal system, whether we're talking about the breakdown of every divine institution. Uh, this world, the devil's world, is in a state of uh, anarchy. It always has been to some degree, but we seem to be more aware of it now. So, Father, we pray for us as believers that we know how to live and interact and talk and not succumb to the uh, pressures to conform from the spirit of the age. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, we may be able to understand uh, a little better what it means to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time, as we're looking at the book of Judges, we looked at the problem of conforming to the world. And so tonight we're looking at how to handle uh, the devil's world. 
The problem that we have now, the problem that they had then, is a problem of paganism, which I'll define a little more as we go through. But paganism is basically anything that is contrary to, opposed to, or disagrees with anything that is uh, from the Word of God, anything that is biblical, anything that is divine viewpoint. There's only two ways, God's way or the devil's way. And the devil's way of thinking is defined by various terms. Paganism is just one of many of them. Worldliness is another one. The spirit of the age is another one. Uh, so this happens. It happens in individuals. It happens in families. It happens in countries, nations, cultures. It happens in businesses. It happens in anything that human beings are part of. And we have to be aware of it. And so we get a uh, sort of a blueprint of what happened in Israel, and that's what happens individually, corporately, uh, nationally, uh, again and again throughout the world. So we see how it is described as the leaders become more and more paganized because they get away from the word of God. Gideon seems to know something about some events, biblical events, but he doesn't know much. He doesn't have divine viewpoint. He has some superstition. He has what I'll talk about tonight is a syncretic, syncretic view of the world. He doesn't have a purely Canaanite view of the world, but he has one that has uh, syncretized with the paganism of the day. And the same thing has happened among the people and among the priesthood. So last time what I did was I looked at four basic verses, or we could combine the James 4 verses into one passage. And Romans 12.2 is where it begins. And in Romans 12.2, we learn that we are not to be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age. That's a direct command. We are not to let the pressures, and let me tell you, there's everybody's under the pressure from the world. Everybody has been since the fall of Adam, and everybody will be until the millennial kingdom sets up. And everybody, nobody can get away from that. And we are not to allow the world to be, to press us into its mold, which means that we have to understand a lot of things about the characteristics of the world system at our time of life. The spirit of the age, that's uh, the term that is really used here that's translated world, but that's world relates to a different term in the, in the Greek, not ionos. Ionos has that idea of the spirit of the age, the thinking of the age, the values of the age, the values of the culture. And so it's, this tells us there's a conflict here. We're either being conformed to the world or transformed by the renewing of our mind. Second, James 1, 5 through 6 describes the believer that is weak in faith. That is the ability to trust God. Now, I had one comment last week. Somebody said, why can't that be weak by means of uh, uh, their doctrinal content? Um, and that's because the contrast in the passage is with uh, those who doubt because they're doubting. They're not trusting God. Those are your, your contrasts in that, in that passage. 
And so the believer that's weak in faith is one who doubts. And so he is called a disukas. Sukas is the word for soul. Die is two. He's two souls. He's of two minds. He has a double loyalty. And Jesus talks about that kind of man, and he either loves the one and hates the other, loves the, or hates the first and loves the other. And it leads to instability. So this is the believer who is weak in faith, who doubts God, is a person who is um, involved in the thinking of the world. And we get that from the next place that the word disukos is used, which is in James uh, 4.8, and uh, where we get the solution for the disukos man. But the context begins back in verse 4 which describes the fact that those who have a friendship or affinity or who are influenced by the cosmic system, the thinking of the world, the spirit of the age, are hostile to God. I mean, it's a stark contrast. And that's one of the reasons I chose these verses last week is because there are so many people who toy with the world who don't want it to be such a, such a stark contrast. But it is, it is presented in the scripture as you're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's straight out of what James says here. And James 4, 8 says a solution for the double-minded is to confess sin. And then if we take the last part of Romans 12, 2, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to grow out of that. As I pointed out last time, we're all born with a sin nature. The sin nature is like a magnet for the ideas, the values, the thinking, the rationales of the devil's world system. And by the time we get saved, we've already absorbed a lot of the, of, of the world's way of thinking. And especially if you wait until you're in a late teen or you're in your uh, adult years, you're going to have just a lot of, uh, of garbage in your soul as a result of that. And it takes years to flush that out with the Word of God. But that's the, that's the great promise of Scripture is that it transforms us and, and we can have an abundant life and get, get, past, uh, get past all of that. We have to be reminded that in John 24:30 Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. And we live in the devil's world. So we have to learn how to deal with that. Now when I'm talking about these terms, I'm using them interchangeably. Human viewpoint is the viewpoint of human beings apart from the word of God. And it's the same as paganism. In fact, I have a good definition of paganism coming up. It's the same as what the Bible calls worldliness or worldly thinking. And it's what conforms to the spirit of the, of the age. It is the thinking of Satan. Now, Millard Erickson, who is a somewhat moderate evangelical theologian, has edited a number of evangelical dictionaries and encyclopedias, things of that nature. And uh, he defined paganism as, in general, religious and ethical systems other than Christianity. I think that's a little weak, but... We'll, we'll expand upon it. Uh, 
technically, paganism in a secular way of thinking, paganism refers to those religions and philosophies that are different from the monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I would differ with that because I think that Islam is not to be identified or in any way, shape, or form with either uh, biblical Judaism or Christianity because I believe that that, uh, Satan and demons masquerade as false gods, and I believe that, and I've taught this many times, that Allah is simply a pseudonym for Satan, his hatred for the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his hatred for Christianity. I mean, when you think of the fact that the uh, Dome of the Rock has inscribed on the inside of its ceiling numerous verses from the Quran, all of which uh, blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ and, and uh, make... Uh, they they um, attack his deity, his virgin birth, all of the things that the scripture uh, teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. So pagan uh, Islam is very much a part of paganism along with any kind of works-based uh, religion. So paganism, in my way of thinking, is the equivalent of any form of human viewpoint thinking, worldliness, or uh, uh, the spirit of, of the age. So last week, one of the main things that I was doing, uh, one more thing, paganism, uh, I just stated that without putting it on the screen. Paganism is the equivalent of human viewpoint or worldliness. They're all uh, equivalent terms. Last week, one of the things that I wanted to do as we got into looking at, at Gideon is to point out this enormous flaw in Gideon's family that there's no realization whatsoever on the part of Gideon until God personally confronts him as the angel of the Lord that he has in any way uh, compromised his life with paganism and he grows up in a home where daddy has big house and it's the center for the local uh, Baal worship and the Asherah tree and all of the rites and rituals and promiscuity that goes along with uh, with the fertility religions was right in his front yard. It's all around him. And uh, he never seems to be aware of that. And too often that's true of a lot of believers, and that's what I was focusing on last time was warning us that Christians need to wake up today. We live in a very different world than the world that we grew up in or the world a 100 years ago. There's always been the world system, but there is a a subtlety today. There is pressure there that is much more overt than there was Uh, 50 or 100 years ago when we still lived in a culture that was dominated by a Judeo-Christian worldview, even though that was losing losing its hold uh, on the the culture. So we always, as Christians, must be aware that one of the three enemies that we face in the Christian life is worldliness. The three enemies are the uh, devil, Satan, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
our own sin nature, the enemy within, and the world system. And these three are not, we talk about them separately, but they are an interlocking uh, offensive line uh, coming against us. And worldliness is the natural inclination of our sin natures, every single one of us. It's it's like a magnet. Uh, our sin natures are a magnet that are attracting the values of the world system around us. So it's easy for us to be deceived. Worldliness is manifested through all of the various uh, world religions, philosophies, and syncretistic mixes of these. I have an article here that is... Uh, uh, several other articles that were linked to the one I read to, read last week, uh, which was an article in the, in a, uh, w- not the Washington Post, but uh, a different Washington paper uh, last week that was entitled um, uh, Wolves in Shepherd's Clothing, talking about how few pastors, and it turns out from looking at some of the other articles related to that, that it was primarily focusing not on all pastors, but on evangelical pastors. And it, because it's one point in there, it, it talks about how, and in one of these other papers I have, uh, denominational pastors are even worse. So when you read that statement, you realize this, and that's what's happened. And a lot of people are, are numb to, they, they just don't realize it. To me, people are just, they're, they're busy living their lives. They're raising, getting married, raising their kids, going to church, focusing on uh, their positive direction in life in terms of their spiritual growth. And yet, as our Lord warned in the, in the parable of the tares and the parable of the leaven in Matthew 13, that the, uh, the, the, the false, are, false believers are growing up among the wheat, the tares, and that as leaven has spread, uh, spreads through the dough, leaven rep- always represents sin and evil in the scripture. It is spreading through uh, the, the world system around us. So we have to be uh, alert to these things. But George Barna wrote another. There's, if you go to the homepage of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, uh, there are several links there related to these recent studies on their um, uh, worldview uh, inventory. And in release number eight entitled Postmodernism and Secularism Increasingly Influence American Adults, this came out in October of last year. And George Barna, who is well known in the uh, world of polling and researching and has um, gained quite a positive reputation for his work over the last 30 years, uh, says that in his opening paragraph, with nine out of ten adults, 88%, crafting a unique worldview fashioned from the personally appealing parts of other worldviews, that's syncretism. So what he goes on to talk about is that, that in these surveys, what they realize is that Christians and non-Christians, aren't, they're, they're not, you can't just lump them all together and say they're all postmodern. 
or they're all secular humanists, or they're all this or they're all that. They're picking and choosing the parts of different worldviews that fit what they want. So that's, that's what syncretism is. And so they have, they'll have elements of Christianity, they'll have elements of this and that, whatever makes life easier for them. And, and that, that's, syncretism is just as much a category of worldliness as, as anything else. So he, he goes on to say the annual worldview assessment of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University indicates that postmodernism and secular humanism contribute significantly to the customized worldviews of Americans. So you can believe that Americans are the ones who are going to customize their own worldview no matter, no matter what. And, um, he says postmodernism has been embraced as the dominant driving worldview by only 1% of the public. However, it too regularly forms the basis of the choices of 16% of U.S. adults. So he goes on, and it's interesting to read that, and um, that's, that's a good article. And you know, in many ways, syncretism is a good word to describe what's going on in uh, Israel during the time of the judges. They're just picking from different world religions. They've got a little bit of, of, um, of what Moses said. Remember when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's getting the law from God and the people become impatient and restless and they, they, want, um, uh, they want Aaron to build him a golden calf. They don't call the golden calf Baal. They call it, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. See, that's syncretism. It's not strict Baalism. So this is what happens. You have this mixing, this syncretism taking place. Third, every believer will struggle with ideas of the spirit of the age because that reflects the world in which we live, and it's constantly pressuring us to conform to that world system. And so we have to be warned about it. I said, number one, that a double-minded man is someone who has a soul filled with a lot of human viewpoint thinking. And so we see and have already defined that what human viewpoint thinking is and that divine viewpoint expresses God's thinking on any subject, any value, any way or method of thinking and making decisions or evaluating situations in life. Now, what's important about that is last week I'm setting you up for where we're going is that Gideon has decisions to make. He has to discern what what he is going to do about this confrontation that came into his life. He's been going along just happy as he can be in his little uh, syncretized world view, and then suddenly in uh, Judges 6.11, the angel of the Lord confronts him reminds us, or maybe it's foreshadowing, of the Lord Jesus Christ confronting Paul on the road to Tarsus. And Gideon, like Paul in the future, has to rethink. He doesn't do as good a job rethinking as the apostle Paul does because eventually he's going to take the people right back into some sort of uh, syncretized uh, religion. So God's way of thinking is called wisdom. In the Old Testament, that's a common word, or truth. And that's the only correct way of thinking. 
And the only source of divine viewpoints is the Bible. We always have to come back to the Bible. Had a discussion with somebody not long ago. They were someone who was a charismatic background and wanted to tell me all their experiences. And I said, that's fine. I don't doubt that you had experiences, but do you really think that you're going to, you should interpret the Bible on the basis of your experience? Of course, they said yes. And I said, well, I hope you think about that because the Bible stands alone. Asking people questions is a good way to get them to think about things uh, without necessarily beating them over the head with something. So in contrast to human viewpoint, divine viewpoint, we saw it produces skillful living, happiness, tranquility, and stability, even in the worst uh, situations. And human viewpoint, even in prosperity, leads to instability. That's why most people fail, the, and nations have all failed the prosperity test. So the root problem is that every one of us develops within the cultural um, the cultural framework of human viewpoint. And one of the major points that I made uh, last week was pressing this point home, that no matter where we are, no matter what job we're in, no matter how mature you think you are as a believer, the world system is pressuring you. And in a lot of cases among believers, they're either unaware of this or they try to ignore it because they just want to go along to get along. They don't want the conflict. They just leave me alone. I want to live my life. And it's the rare believer who wants to search out and destroy elements of paganism that have uh, rooted in their own soul. And the starting point is always our ultimate loyalty, and this is what Gideon is faced with. This challenge when God tells him to tear down the, the altar to Baal, God is saying, are you going to follow me? Are you going to obey the, the law of Moses, the first commandment of which is you shall have no other gods before me? And that's the bottom line. Are we going to love God or love ourselves? A constant battle that we all have to face. So when we look at Gideon, first of all, he grew up in a culture that was highly paganized, a syncretic religion. And he had absorbed much of that already. That's how he looks at life, how he makes decisions. That's why he's going to put out the fleece. That's a pagan idea. It's seen in his home life. He's got a vague understanding of the Exodus event and God's promise to Israel, but he doesn't understand why God, if all that's true, God is um, letting them go through all these things. He's like a lot of Christians today. They, they Pop Christianity, they have a variety of ideas they've heard and then uh, and verses they've heard repeated over and over again out of context and think they have some understanding of the Bible. And then third, that Gideon went along with his family until there was a come to the angel of the Lord moment. And he has to make a decision as to what he, what he will do. So that's where, where we are. And this is setting up where we're going, which has to do with understanding how to make wise decisions in the Christian way of life. So last week was a warning on the fact that we have to be on guard for the pressures of the world 
uh, to conform. We cannot escape the world. John 15, 18, and 19, Jesus told us, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are out of the world, but we live in the world. But we are not to be part of the world system. So we are prohibited from succumbing to the pressures to conform to the world. So how are some of the ways that we can um, can do this? And that's what I want to focus on in some biblical examples this evening as a prelude to getting into uh, how do we make good decisions in relation to the will of God. Um, last time I talked about this problem of conflict with a lot of believers. They live in a world, many believers live paycheck to paycheck. They are under pressure. I saw this when I was teaching school in 1974 and 75, certain policies that were starting to come through on the Department of Education. They really weren't new by the mid-70s. They had been coming through since the 60s. But I was was running into them and had run into them in, in college. And observing how uh, how these things were were sort of sloughed off by people who were Christians, and you know I wasn't thinking, well, you need to go mount an offensive against the education system. It wasn't that obvious or that um, uh, had penetrated that far at that time, except in the area of science in the Bible and creation and evolution. And even at that time, you did have a number of organizations that had developed, like Institute for Creation Research. It was a couple of decades later before Answers in Genesis came along. And there were a number of teachers that had been brought up on uh, charges here and there and around the country for not teaching evolution, for not teaching or for teaching uh creation, mixing religion with God. And fortunately, there were organizations that would come along and would uh, take their case and they would, they would be adjudicated. But there's always been this problem. And I noticed at the time that there were people who would say things like, well, you can't pray in school. And I said, no, that's not right. That's not what the decision said. The decision, the Supreme Court decision, said that you can't, the school system cannot um, force or mandate a prayer time in school. When I grew up, when I was little, we said the Lord's Prayer. Then we had a moment of silence. Then it was a moment of reflection. Then we just sort of stood there, and then I graduated from high school. So it it moved along. Uh, But it was going in a particular direction, and there were uh, certainly teachers that articulated a different view uh, that is part of what a Christian can do. Now you have to be a little wiser in how you do it. A lot of people get the idea that all schools are the same way. We have to be careful with all, you know, generalizations because all generalizations are wrong, including that one. But I remember when, when we were up in Connecticut and Pam was teaching at a school down in New London and a number of the other teachers were Christians and they would share prayer requests and pray for each other and uh, different things like that. And you get the impression in the pagan northeast 
that you just wouldn't uh, ever uh, mention Jesus' name except as a profanity or, or tell the, the, at Christmas tell the true story of Christianity. And a wise way that my wife would do that was when a kid asked, well, what's Christmas all about? She would ask a Christian kid who knew the, knew the truth to answer the question. And so the kids would become uh, evangelized. So there's a lot of ways that you can work around these kinds of situations until you can't. And that's a, that's a problem when you get to that, that particular, uh, that particular point. So that's what I've sort of been focusing on. Now, what do you do when the world system does come down hard on you? and says that you have to enforce this policy or you have to enforce that policy or you have to do this or you have to do that and you know that that is contrary to the word of God. Well, we're going to go through a couple of different scenarios. Option number one is just fail to address the realities of the situation. You ignore it, hope it will go away. Or you just don't take it seriously. And the biblical example of this is Solomon. Solomon accepted the world's methodology for national alliances. How does a nation seal a treaty with another nation? Well, the king of one nation gives his daughter to the king of the other nation, and that seals the deal. But that was a violation of God's mandates. They were not to multiply their wives. The kings specifically were stated as not multiplying their wives because of the danger of the influence of, of paganism. And so Solomon, the, remember, he's the wisest man in the Old Testament. God said that, not me. And yet he's got a problem with his sin nature like everybody else, and he has a problem with uh, the world system. And he marries, and the Scripture talks about the fact that he uh, married these uh, daughters from uh, who brought their gods with them from Egypt and from Moab, uh, the Ammonites and Edomites. And in 1 Kings 11, one, we say, we're told, but King Solomon loved many foreign women. Enlist them. Verse 2, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel. So he is being, he's specifically violating scripture, which always happens when you're conforming to the world system. You're going to be violating the word at some point. Uh, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. And so they would come and they would bring their household gods. And instead of saying, okay, you can live over there. I'm got, you've got a nice little place to live. And if you want to worship your little gods, we're just going to leave you there and you can't go anywhere or talk to anybody and you're isolated. You're in solitary confinement. No, but he gets involved with that, and he slowly gets uh, sucked into this till he has 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 
See, that's the danger of just acting as if the fact that you're living in the world in a pagan environment and not treating it seriously that it can turn your heart. And that's what I was getting at last last week. So you have three examples of, of what you can do. And the first example of what you can do is you can go along to get along. I'm talking about specific situations when you're called on to enforce policies such as choosing to call children by their preferred pronoun, uh, which just increases a pagan view of sexual identity, uh, leads to compromise, further collapse of marriage, sex, sexual identity, marriage, and, and family. So you can go along to get along. Second, you can quit quietly and go somewhere else. But these first two options aren't really options, but it depends on what a per, where a person is in their life and their circumstances. Sometimes I don't think going along to get along is ever valid uh, because it leaves you in, in a Solomon situation. But sometimes the only option you have is to uh, quit and go somewhere else because of whatever circumstances you're in. But what needs to be done is that believers need to take a stand for the truth and fight it in a gracious and humble manner. That is the most significant, and we see lots of fights like that going on in the courts today. If you as a believer are told to validate and affirm a child's gender-confused fantasy, then you've got some real things you, you need to think about. I know of one example, the daughter of someone in the church who is teaching third grade, I believe, and she had a little girl tell her that I, she would like to have her refer to her by her preferred pronoun. And she thought about it for a couple of seconds, and she said, you know, I just can't do that. Now, thankfully, that didn't go anywhere. In contrast, there was a coach, well-known case, in Virginia who was a Christian. By all accounts, he treated students graciously, whatever their circumstances were. He didn't have any overt discrimination of those who considered themselves to be uh, another sex other than their biology and um, that. But then the order came down from the school board from the principle that he had to call students by their preferred pronouns. So he went in to properly to the authority in the school and he uh, to discuss it with, with the principal that this he could not do this because this violated his, his uh, uh, Christian beliefs. Now, he didn't just do that off the cuff. You know, he just didn't react in anger. He wasn't, didn't react by being upset. He thought things through. He had a plan and course of action because you, it's going to go one of two ways where they're going to say, okay, that's fine. We understand. We'll let you uh, follow your beliefs, which would be consistent with what they seem to affirm. That is diversity, but it is, isn't diverse. You know, everybody has to conform to their view. Um, and so he was fired because he wouldn't conform to the policy. Now, when you make these things, you've got two, two options are going to happen. One, it, you're going to get fired or some other con- negative consequence, 
or God's going to intervene. But you have to be prepared for what's going on. Now, the Alliance for the Defense of Freedom came along, took his case, took it through the courts, and the courts found in his favor and forced the school district to reinstate him. Now, you know, that's going to be a real fun environment to work in after after that. But but those are the ways that we should we should stand up. Otherwise, the whole culture gets rolled over. Now, we have biblical examples of this, and the first is Daniel. Now, most of you are familiar with the uh, stories in Daniel. In chapter 1, we know that there was a large number, several, uh, several tens of thousands probably, of Israelites that were taken back to Babylon in the second invasion of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar into, into Israel. And they needed to train these uh, young Jewish men to be pre- to prepare them for the administrative service in the Chaldean government. And so they devised a three-year training program under the chief of the eunuchs. And part of that included a, a diet, a diet that the Chaldeans deemed would make them uh, healthy. And so Daniel 1.5 says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might serve before, before the king. But what happens in this situation is Daniel thinks about this and goes to the Lord in prayer. We, it doesn't say that specifically in this passage, but we can infer it from Daniel's, what we know about Daniel. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So he's got an issue with he he is mandated by Mosaic law to eat a specific diet and that we would call today kosher that which is not kosher is called treif so most of us enjoy our treif because we're in the church age so he's not going Daniel is not going to eat treif and so he I would assume it's not stated in the passage that he prayed about this because God gave him the wisdom to uh, negotiate with the chief of the chief of the eunuchs. And so in verse 12, he says, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. In other words, let's have a little test for the next 10 days. You can have uh, the others eat what you put before them, and we will eat according to what our God has dictated, and we'll see who's healthier and doing better at the end of 10 days. And so God... Uh, God blessed him, and the result was that at the end of those 10 days, in verse 15 we read, and at the end of 10 days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
So what we're told there is that God blessed them. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. You go in and you negotiate in good faith with somebody, and they go, no. So it's not time to bow the neck and get into a brawl. You've got to operate in grace and kindness and not uh, try to start World War III over things, but stick to your principles, which means that it may seem to end badly and could end badly. Now, what happens next? And what happens next is, uh, I'll get to in a second in Daniel 2, I want to give you an example from, of, uh, of this kind of negotiation that um, took place to one, with one of our Chafer Seminary students who is in uh, Pastor Clay Ward's church. She works for some government agency, and their bureaucracy and all of the wisdom of the bureaucrats came in and dictated a certain a variety of policies that were all part of their diversity, equality, and inclusivity program. Those are the big, big buzzwords uh, in the in the government. But as she read the material, read the manual. Uh, God gave her the wisdom to recognize that these terms were never defined. So because she has heard uh, uh, various pastors teach about how, to, how Daniel negotiated, that she raised her hand in class and she said in a very non-threatening and non-argumentative way, uh, if we're going to implement this and, and we have to enforce this with those who are under us, uh, can can we have some definitions for these terms? What exactly do you mean by diversity? Is this diversity of age or diversity of education or diversity of income or diversity of religion? What kind of diversity is it? You know, we, it needs to be clarified. And then she went on with equality. She said, well, can we get a definition for equality? Is this equality of opportunity or equality of results? equality in physical strength, equality in income. And as she raised these questions, it became clear that, that they had worked too quickly, too hastily in trying to implement this policy. And what it developed was a lot of discussion. And in the grace of God, it ended in the right direction where they decided not to implement any of this because as they got a lot of feedback from all of the different managers that were there, they realized that, that this was just a real mess and they, they probably ought not do it. So there are those kind of good results, but there's bad results also. And we have to be prepared that if we're going to uh, make an issue out, we're going to make a decision. Now, in recent years, we've had a lot of problems with government interference, government mandates on the COVID vaccines. Now, I've taken the position that whether or not an individual wants to get vaccinated is between him and the Lord. It's not any different from the doubtful things related to uh, Corinth, related to any number of area in li areas in life. We'll talk about that when we get into decision-making um, uh, and the will of God in, in, a in the next couple of weeks. But um, so I, I get a call. I get lots of calls from people. I've heard all kinds of scenarios over the last probably 40 years in my life. I had a guy in my church who was being forced by uh, 
Southwestern Bell, as it was called back then, to go through guided imagery training, which is nothing more than some, you know, demonic uh, divination type program, New Age stuff back back in the 80s. Pastor, what do I do? And this kind of thing happens again and again and again. But this was a couple. I don't know where they live, somewhere in the Midwest. They both had a figure. One made over 300000 The other one made over two fifty. And so together they made over half a million dollars a year, and they were being forced by their company to get vaccinated. And he was de- they were both dead set against it for whatever the reasons were. And I said, well, you just have to do the investigate everything yourself and you have to pray about it and you make the decision that you think is best based on uh, your understanding of Scripture. It may not be right for everybody, but it's right for you. You have to make that decision. There's no absolute here. And so they both lost their jobs, lost their income. But that, those are the kinds of consequences that can come along uh, if you're going to uh, take a stand bi- biblically. Now, I understand that was a, a situation that was um, where, where it was doubtful, but we've got lots. I, I can't tell you how many Christian service members into all branches of the service have studied the issue and made a decision that for them they were not going to get vaccinated and most of them are being terminated. Uh, despite a clear violation of their First Amendment rights. So we, there are consequences for take, taking a stand. So what happens in Daniel chapter 2 is by this time, these guys have been, uh, they, they have done well, and they've gained the respect of Nebuchadnezzar and their peers. And in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and the result is that uh, as Daniel then uh, interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should, be, they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. This is like he's the number two or three guy in, the, in, in Babylon. So they are well known, and they are honored. And that's the backdrop to understand what happens in Daniel chapter 3. Now Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has given himself over completely to arrogance, and so he uh, builds this huge uh, gold statue, and uh, he, is, he is going to command that everybody in the kingdom bow down and worship him. And so when that time comes and the orchestra plays, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, anti-Semitism in the Old Testament. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid a due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So then Nebuchadnezzar has a meltdown. And rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? And they know that this is a life or death issue because they've heard what the punishment is, which is to be cast, thrown into the fiery furnace, uh, and incinerated. So they get another option. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't thrown them in yet because he recognizes their value, so I'm going to give you a second chance. And uh, verse 16, their response, classic. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. See, when you're in a confrontation with the world system, God can intervene and deliver you. But he may not. That's the rest of it. Goes. They go on to say, uh, but if... He goes on to say in, um, in, in, they go on to say rather in verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, they're not being antagonistic. They're not being rebellious. They are, are not giving in to silent insolence, which was an old, uh, uh, old category for which a soldier could be court-martialed. They are showing all the respect they can for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar just just blows a gasket, and it says the expression on his face changed. I mean, he's just going ballistic. And ordered that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was already heated, and it's so hot that it's burning up the uh, people who are attending to it. And then when they put... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is able to see that there's three men in there. His counselors say, didn't we put three men in there? And the king said, uh, and they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he said, look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So Nebuchadnezzar goes near the mouth of the burning fire. So he's protected because the chief of the guards burned up who tried, who was putting them in there. So he's getting close and he man and, and God protected him. So Nebuchadnezzar responds, it's a witness. Our stand for the truth can be used by God as a witness to the truth. And that's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. What a testimony, because they were, they were willing to risk it all. And in many cases, you read Voice of the Martyrs, how these Christians around the world make decisions like this day in and day out, and thousands of them are just slaughtered. Because when we stand against the world and the devil's world, uh, it doesn't always work out this way. And so as we look at this, this first uh, evaluation, how do you handle it when you are put in a place where you are being forced to enforce a policy uh, with the people you're in, 
in charge of that you know is a, in some ways, a compromise of your biblical values. And this is, this is what we have. But we have to recognize that. And the problem that I have seen as a pastor for 40 years and in, in, you know, in my own life and in uh, numerous jobs that I've had over the years is that the, uh, the amazing number of Christians who are clueless how the world is pressuring them and that they need to do something about it. And they just go along to get along because there's a breakdown in the teaching ministry of the pulpit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. It's not about getting mad. It's not about uh, going to war against them, except in a spiritual sense. As Paul says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. These are strongholds of ideas casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. Now, it doesn't say every spiritual thought into captivity. It's every thought, every area of human intellection. That goes for math. It goes for geology, biology, medicine, it goes for the arts, it goes for theater, it goes for music, it goes for entertainment. We are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that means even at our place of employment. It's not just a place to get a paycheck. And too often... You see too many people, and I've seen this in seminary, not just if I could go on and on about stories of how many men and the number of men in my graduating class at Dallas Seminary who are on the dark side now is appalling because they didn't deal with the world system correctly and they got sucked into it and it is profound. And that's why when you look at these studies by the Arizona Christian University, that you now have a visible church in America where uh, less than 20% of the pastors, whatever the figure was, something like that, hold to a biblical worldview or less than 30%, whatever it was, hold to a biblical worldview because they have compromised with the, with the cosmic system along the way, with the world system. So we have to take... Uh, be wise. How do we make decisions in life then? And that's what we'll come back to next time, looking at the last section of Judges 6. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and we pray that you would help us to see how they apply in our own lives and how we should uh, uh, take stands if necessary, how we should help our families and help others to understand how the world system is influencing things and above all, just walking close with you so that we can honor and glorify you in the way that we think and how we think and what we think. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.